0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 in a moment. You know, I hate to get rid of this Bible. I've had it for so long and it's got patches and tape all over it. But I'm going to have to because it's just, it's getting to the point that it's falling apart and it's beyond mending. So pages keep falling out and I have to keep putting them back in. So it'd be easier to just get another Bible. But And I've got about a dozen, but nevertheless, transitioning is hard. Just a few words in review. A few weeks ago, we were in uh, part of chapter 10 and made references to some earlier chapters. Uh, and in chapter 9 of Luke Jesus causes 12 apostles together and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases as he sent them out. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal diseases. And when they returned they gave an account to Jesus of all that they'd done. And Mark re- the Gospel of Mark gives a, an account of the same incident and adds some information to it. It says they were casting out demons and healing many sick people. And then later on in chapter 9, we find nine apostles that are unable to cast a demon out of a boy. And the occasion is on uh, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he goes up there and he carries with him Peter and James and John and leaves nine of the apostles below with the crowds. And these nine apostles cannot cast a demon out of a boy when the father brings him to him. And when Jesus and the three that are with him come down the mountain and the scripture says on the next day, so they spend the night on the mountain, the father says, I beg your disciples, to cast the demon out, but they could not. The text is in um, Luke 9, 44 and 45. He's talking about, well, I think I have got the wrong scripture down. It's, it's 38, 39 boys like okay it says that the man from the crowd shouted saying teacher I beg you to look at my son for he is my only boy and a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth and only with difficulty does it leave him calling him as if, as it leaves. I beg your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus rebukes them, and whether he's rebuking his disciples alone, or whether he's rebuking the disciples along with the crowd, it's not completely obvious. But he's saying that you failed to show enough faith for the healing of the boy. People were seeing miracles as wonders, but not as signs of God's presence and his demand for repentance. But when Jesus rebuked the spirit and healed the boy, they were all amazed at the greatness or the majesty of God. And as always, Jesus never attracts attention to himself, but brings all the glory to the Father. Chapter 10 tells about the 72 disciples that Jesus sent out to preach the (coughs) kingdom of God and how they returned with joy, saying that even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus tells them that he has given them all authority over the power of the enemy. But their rejoicing should be not in that, but because their names are written in heaven. And in chapter 10, verses 21 through 24, let's look at that for a moment. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Excuse me, if I get in the right chapter, but we're in 9 again. 10, <coughs> 21 through 24. And that very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and any one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you have seen and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. One of the most striking things, to me anyway, in the New, in the New Testament is the blindness of the scribes, the priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees these people were full of the knowledge of the Old Testament, of the prophets in the Old Testament, of the predictions of the coming of the Savior, the place that he was going to be born, and yet they rejected him. Jesus met all the requirements that Scripture demanded to no avail at least to the vast majority of people. (coughs) They were ignorant and hostile to who he was and to what he said, to his authority. You know, it's a shame that they were not as enlightened as we are. If the Pharisees had been a little bit more like us, everything would have been okay. That's the way we seem to think a lot of times. But all you have to do is look at the general population and what they've heard and how they've rejected most everything to know that that's not true. What does verse say again? At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed it to infants yes father for this way was well pleasing in your sight this verse and all four of the verses we just read are teaching us about (coughs) God's covenant of grace the salvation of man does not depend on his ability or his level of education but it's a gracious gift from God to see and hear the truth The truth of the gospel that's fulfilled in Christ. It's a gift that's given to some and everyone that's received it ought to cherish it beyond anything else because everybody doesn't get it. That's what Jesus shows us. His grace, our inadequacy, our inability to earn this gift from God. We've received it from His hand. We see this in Jesus' prayer that we've just read in verses 21 and 22. In His exhortation in verses 23 and 24. Jesus' prayer is pointing out what happened to the 72 disciples He sent out. They returned having preached to town after town and healed and cast out demons and they've seen people come into faith. So you see, your people are separated into two categories. The wheat and the shaft. Or the wheat and the weeds. Those that have been called by God and those that reject God. Those that love Him and those that hate him. The scripture says at this very time. What time? The time that the disciples return with their report. And rejoice doesn't do justice. To what the scripture says. The word there. It's, it means that Jesus is thrilled with joy. <coughs> at what God is doing in him. What he sees the Holy Spirit doing, the working. This is the working that he sees in his human nature. Jesus rejoices in the in the Father's work of salvation, but he's thrilled that the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit, rests on him. Luke four one says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts ten thirty-eight, Peter is speaking to Cornelius a Roman centurion in his household, and he says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Don't forget that Jesus in his human nature is like us in every way except sin. Jesus in his human nature is fully man. And in his human nature, he relies on the special anointing of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the ministry that he's called to do. It's so easy to overlook that. So Jesus thanks the Father. But he doesn't thank the Father for forgiveness or that forgiveness comes to all the world through him. He thanks the Father that he has hidden these things from the wise And reveals them to little children. That's not the way we would think about it. So again. He doesn't thank the father. That forgiveness comes to all the world through him. When you say the word world in scripture. It never means every last person. Never. He thanks the father. That he has hidden these things from the wise. And revealed them to little children. He speaks of redemption in terms of revealing and hiding those who will see and those who will not. So what are these things that Jesus is talking about? Verses six and seven take us back to that. He says, if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. And if not, it'll return to you. Stay in that house eating and drinking that what they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Jesus is talking about when he sends out the 72 disciples, he said he was sending laborers into his harvest like lambs in the midst of wolves. And in those verses, he's describing men of peace who will receive the message of peace And men who are not men of peace will not receive them. And towns that will receive them and towns that will reject them. And Jesus is thanking the Father that he hides the message from those who think they're qualified and reveals it to those that are not qualified at all. And verse 21 says, this way was well-pleasing in God's sight. It's God's gracious will that shows itself in the hiding and in the revealing. It's the covenant of grace that begins when man first sins. The time when man is no longer able to fulfill the requirements God sets before him. He's no longer willing to meet God's standard. Instead, man tries to make standards apart from God to qualify himself. First Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Nothing we can do will solve the sin problem. Nothing is a substitute for the revelation of God by the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's impossible for spiritually dead people. To know God the Father or his Son. Unless the Son reveals both. Christ's ambassadors. His disciples. Were privileged people. They were able to hear and see things. That the greatest saints in the Old Testament. Longed to see and hear but could not. The Messiah was at work and they were part of that work. Jesus said these things to his disciples privately. Privately. These words were for them alone. And then we get into the parable that Jesus tells. Beginning in verse 25 through 37. And a lawyer. A scribe, and a lawyer the same thing in most contexts. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus. And who is my neighbor? And the parable that so many of you are familiar with. Jesus replied and said. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him. And went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him. He passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite. too, When he came to the place. And saw him. Passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Who was on a journey. Came upon him. And when he saw him. He felt compassion. And came to him. And bandaged up his wounds. Pouring oil and wine on them. And he put them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to the inn, to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave him, or gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man and who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. It was expected that rabbis would discuss theological matters in public. And the question that this lawyer asked was one that was often debated by the Jews. A lawyer would be concerned not with secular studies, but with the law in the Jewish sense, the law of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. From there he would have studied the rest of Scripture. He would be expected to be interested in and knowledgeable about religious affairs. The text the text says he put Jesus to the test. Meaning he asked the question. Not in search of information. But to see what kind of answer. Jesus would give. His question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life. Shows that he was thinking of some form of salvation. By works. And had no understanding of divine grace. He like many of the Jews of his time. Thought, their, er, thought that their eternal destiny was based on their Jewish bloodline and their good deeds. The fact that I'm born a Jew, that puts me right at the top. And my good deeds take care of the rest. Jesus asked the lawyer to answer his own question. And then he compliments him correctly citing Leviticus 1918 and Deuteronomy 6.5 Jesus did not say that it's possible to earn eternal life by loving God and your neighbor no human other than Jesus has ever been able to love perfectly in every situation some neighbors are easy to love some are very difficult to love Love and God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, are not intended to speak of individual, separate parts of the human experience. Rather, they describe the total, the totality of the person. Jesus told the lawyer, "Do this, and you will live." And of course, Jesus knows this is impossible for man. And even if it were possible. It's not what we do, but our attitude that matters. If we really love God the way in which Jesus speaks, then we rely on him and not on ourselves. The lawyer wanted a set of rules that he could keep and so earn eternal life. Jesus says eternal life is not a matter of keeping rules at all. But the lawyer is not satisfied. He wants to justify himself. To clear himself of any guilt. He asks, and who's my neighbor? Jesus doesn't answer the question directly, but goes immediately into telling a parable. The lawyer knows that neighbor means more than just the person next door to you. But the question is how much more? The Jews had different opinions on this, but they all seemed to be confined to Israel. That's my neighbor. Anybody outside of Israel, there's no way. The idea of love toward mankind doesn't seem to have reached them. We need to remember that the lawyer had asked two questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? And Jesus is answering the second question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't say so, but the traveler is clearly clearly a Jew. The need of the neighbor and not his nationality, that's what's important. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles long. And in that 17 miles, the descent was over 3,000 feet. So it's over half a mile going down during that walk. So Jerusalem is at a high elevation. Jericho is at a very low one. And it was a dangerous route through desert country and had a lot of places for robbers to hide. And feel safe. The Jewish priest and Levite. Both of whom held respected positions. Respected religious positions. Chose to ignore. A severely injured man. Lying on the road. And the fact is. They're going down the road away from Jerusalem which means they're not rushing toward some kind of important temple duty in Jerusalem. They're going away from it. They even go out of their way to cross the road to the other side to avoid contact with the man. There certainly could have been other concerns that they might be thinking about. The text says the man was half dead, so they probably have no way of knowing whether the man is alive or dead without going over and touching him, turning him over or whatever. But if they touch him and the man is dead, it means that they are no longer ceremonially clean. They've touched a dead body, which breaks the law in Leviticus 21. It's also possible they might be concerned that if they go down, the same robbers might be there attacking them. We only know that they left the man where he was in his suffering and in his needs. Those that were listening to this parable that Jesus is telling would have expected the next person that Jesus is going to bring into the story to be a normal everyday Jew. to to provide a contrast to the story. The last thing they would have expected is for the next person to be a Samaritan. That was beyond uncomfortable for a Jew. To them, for the Jews, and the, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. It was not a Jew... Helping a Samaritan, but a Samaritan helping a Jew that had been ignored by other Jews. That would make this story a really difficult one to hear. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be physical half-breeds, if you will. Who had intermarried with foreigners and were guilty of false worship. A Samaritan would be the last person a Jew would expect to help. Yet this Samaritan sees the same wounded man. He stops, he treats his wounds, puts him on his own animal, carries him to an inn, and takes care of him. The next day, the Samaritan gives the innkeeper two denarii, two days' wages for a common working laborer. And he says when he comes back, he will reimburse the innkeeper for whatever more he's spent on the man while he was gone, the wounded man. (coughs) For such a sworn enemy of the Jews to show compassion on an injured Jew and pay the expense of his recuperation while two, two Jewish religious Officials did not would deeply humiliate a Jew. And there's no indication that the Samaritan expected or wanted any kind of reward or public honor for what he did. And just as an aside information, pouring oil and wine for a wound appears to have been widely used by both Jews and Greeks. Wine would have been used for cleaning the wound because of its alcohol content, content acted as an antiseptic. The oil, which it would have been olive oil, would have eased the pain. The Samaritan placed the man on his own donkey, which means the Samaritan had to walk to the end. And it's been calculated uh, by what was commonly charged in Italy at that time. And of course, this is Samaria, or this is Israel, but it's close to the same thing. And the calculations show that the two denarii given to the innkeeper could have covered as much of two months of board. That's extravagant. And regardless of the exact amount of time, it was substantial. And the Samaritan promised even more on his return if it was necessary. Now let's get back to the question that began the parable. Who's my neighbor? He asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? To the man who fell among the robbers. And it's impossible for the lawyer to avoid acknowledging that it was the Samaritan who showed mercy. Now the lawyer really has to think about whether the priest and the Levite who scrupulously retained their moral purity Required by the law. By not touching a body. Really kept the law. Since the law also required. The love of your neighbor. It's sometimes easy to read a story. Like this. And see the high cost of caring. But it's far more costly. Not to care. The priest and the Levite. Lost far more by their neglect than the Samaritan did by his concern. They lost the opportunity to become better men and good stewards of what God had given them. It all depends on your outlook. To the thieves, the traveling Jew was a victim to exploit. So they... Attacked him. To the priest and the Levite. He was a nuisance. To avoid. So they ignored him. But the, to the Samaritan. He was a neighbor to love. And help. So he took care of them. Jesus tells us. The same thing he told the lawyer. Go and do Likewise. Let's pray. Lord, a lot of things, as we think about them and meditate on them, really hit our hearts. And instead of casually reading your scripture, things begin to penetrate us that um, we avoid either intentionally or just carelessly. We ask you to help us to understand your word better. To study it, Lord, and have it penetrate our hearts. Because, Lord, we know you're working in us. And we know that the work, sometimes it seems to be easy and sometimes it's really, really difficult for us to absorb. But, Lord, we want our hearts to be changed. We want to be like you. We don't want to be like a person with a stone heart, but we want to be about a person that has a new heart and a heart of mercy and love, like your heart. So we ask you to watch over us and lead us in the way, right, the, right, the paths of righteousness, for your name's sake and to your glory. Amen.